If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. As we continue our studies in the Gospel of John this morning, we're in John chapter 5, and beginning in verse 31, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. John 5, 31 through verse 47. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he records the words of our Lord Jesus. If I alone testify about myself... My testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified about me. You have neither seen his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, in recent weeks, as we've been considering this remarkable chapter, John chapter 5, we've seen Jesus here in this chapter make some very bold claims concerning his identity, right? Earlier in the chapter, his opponents had took offense at him and had tried to kill him when he called God his own father. They had rightly understood that in claiming God as his own father, Jesus was making himself equal with God. And Jesus went on to show the unity that he has with the Father and that all must honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He proclaimed that the Father had granted to him to have life in himself and thus having life in himself, he is able to give life to those who believe and understand that the Father has sent him and he's also able to raise the bodies of the dead at the last day. Jesus is able to give both spiritual life and physical life because he, as the Son of God, has life in himself. And likewise, Jesus explained that the Father had given him all authority so as to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, if we take all of these claims together and we think about what this really means, this is really amazing. If you stop and think about it, can you imagine putting yourself in the place of one of Jesus' Jewish opponents and hearing all of this. 
They thought the man was crazy and blasphemous simply for calling God his own father. But then comes all of this that Jesus explains, yeah, God is my own father. I really am equal to him. Imagine the jaw-dropping shock and outrage that they must have experienced. But what we find here in these verses that we've just read is that Jesus masterfully supports the claims that he had just made. He understands that these are rather momentous claims, that these are game changers. If these things that Jesus has said of himself are true, then this changes everything. It means that the long-promised hope of Israel, the Messiah, the son of David, the branch from the roots of Jesse is here. That branch has sprung up. It means that the God of heaven is now setting up his kingdom, which would not be destroyed, as Daniel had prophesied. It is time then to turn away from sin and to believe in him, to believe the gospel that he proclaims, and to be willing to lay down everything so as to follow this man. But can Jesus be trusted? Is he telling the truth? What proof does he have that these things which he asserts are actually so? In these verses, Jesus brings out the witnesses that testify on his behalf. Witnesses that serve to validate these striking claims that he has made. And so he says in verse 31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now obviously this doesn't mean that Jesus cannot be trusted to speak the truth. Of course, Jesus speaks the truth and only the truth. But Jesus understands that someone who claims great things for himself can justly be open to suspicion. Jesus knows that talk is cheap. It's easy to go around and make yourself sound important if one is inclined to do so. And so what Jesus does for the remainder of this chapter is to marshal the witnesses that support the claims that he has just made for himself. And though he mentions other witnesses, his ultimate witness is God the Father. And he hints at this in verse 32. He says, There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. That's his ultimate witness, God the Father. He is the one who has given witness, and that witness is given in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's ultimately where Jesus is going. But before he gets there, he appeals to some other witnesses as well. Witnesses which were external and currently public witnesses there in uh, in the day in which he was on earth. And by way of condescension, Jesus first appeals to the testimony which John the Baptist had given concerning him. He does this in verses 33 through 35. John the Baptist had given testimony. This was the reason why he had come into the world. And so if you think back to the, the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.7, John says that John the Baptist had come as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And Jesus says here in John 5 that they, that is the Jews, had, had sent to John and that John had testified about the truth. And indeed, if you think back, John chapter 1, again, the Jews did indeed send to John. They sent priests and Levites to ask John the Baptist who he was. And he said that he was the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was the one whom Isaiah had prophesied would come and prepare the way before the Messiah. That was John's testimony about himself, but John also testified about Christ. He said that he was not unworthy that he was not worthy to untie the straps of the sandals of the one who was coming after him. 
And then the next day after saying those things, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was he of whom I said, The one who comes after me has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. So they had sent to John. John had testified about the truth. And Jesus says in verse 35 that John was a lamp that was burning and was shining. John himself was not the light. Jesus is the light, but John was a lamp. It was burning, it was shining. And he said that the Jews were willing for a time to rejoice in the light that John was giving off. And indeed they were. There was some excitement that accompanied the ministry of John. The Gospel of Matthew tells us how Jerusalem was going out to him. And all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And... Matthew was clear that that included Sadducees and Pharisees as well. Many of them went out to John for baptism. They were willing for a time to rejoice in the shining of John's lamp. But as Jesus' words here imply, that willingness to rejoice in that light was short-lived. It only lasted for a little while. And we should notice here how even though Jesus goes on to appeal to more weighty witnesses than John... He does mention John as a witness. And the reason for which he mentioned John is there in verse 34. I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus had spoken about John so that his hearers would be saved, so that they would put two and two together, so to speak, that they remembered, that they would remember what John had said and then put that together with what they now see in front of them in the person of Jesus. And believe. Because John had told them that someone greater was coming. He had said that he was merely a witness for this greater one. And John had told his hearers specifically that that greater one was in fact Jesus. That he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, Jesus points back to John and in essence and says, He told you the truth about me and now here I am. John was a lamp that was burning and shining. He was given off light in a dark world by bearing witness to the truth about Jesus. And I think it's worthy of our consideration that the churches of Christ in the book of Revelation are referred to as, as lamp stands. You find this both in the, the opening chapters of the book of Revelation and also in Revelation chapter 11 where you have those, those two witnesses who were spoken of as, as olive trees and lamp stands. Churches are lampstands because they're holding out the light, giving off the testimony of Christ. And that's what we're supposed to be as a church, as a lampstand, a collective body of Christ, shining for Christ, reflecting the light of Christ for all to see. And the question that we need to ask then is whether we are burning, whether we are shining. I pray that we would shine and that we would, as Paul says in Philippians 2, would prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. The world is a dark place, and Christ is the light, and he has made his light to shine in our hearts. And So let's burn and shine for the glory of Christ and for the good of the world. Now, Jesus had mentioned here the testimony of John for the benefit of his hearers. 
so that they'd be saved. And then he proceeded in verse 36 to mention an even greater witness than John, namely the works which the Father had given him to do. Jesus performed miracles. And of course, this discussion here in John 5 follows on the healing of that man at the pool of Bethesda, that man who'd been there ill for 38 years. Jesus told this man to get up, and he did get up, because Jesus had healed him. And by this time, Jesus had performed many other miracles as well. Now, the sober-minded and critically thinking Jews understood that these works testified to who Jesus was. Was that not the very thing that Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for that first Passover of his ministry? Nicodemus came to him and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus understood these miracles testified to Jesus' identity. God is with this man in some remarkable and unique way. Nicodemus understood that. The miracles themselves were undeniable. The accounts of the Gospels show no one denying that Jesus had performed miracles. The only things that his opponents could do really was to discredit the miracle and to regard the miracle as the working of the devil. That's what they did. As we find in Mark chapter 3, they said, He is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So they couldn't deny that Jesus was doing these great signs. They only had two options, either to attribute them to Satan or to attribute them to the fact that Jesus was a teacher who was sent from God and that he did the works which the Father had given him to accomplish. The works themselves testified that the Father had sent Jesus. And Jesus even appealed to his works when John sent to him from prison. If you remember later on when John the Baptist was uh, in prison, put there by Herod, that he had sent to Jesus and he was wondering in a moment of weakness, are you the one who was to come or should we, should we look for somebody else? And Jesus sent back to John and he said, go and report to John what you see in here. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus told John what he was doing. He was doing these works. And he said, this testifies about me, that I am, in fact, the Christ. And though we ourselves have not seen the miracles of Jesus with our own eyes, nevertheless, we've read the eyewitness accounts of them in Scripture. And we must receive them as a significant witness to who Christ is. Jesus went about doing good. He healed the sick with a word. He cast out demons. And these things demonstrated his power. These things demonstrated that the kingdom of God had come to earth in him. And this is no small thing. And therefore we must never treat the miracles of Christ as recorded in scripture with contempt or skepticism. Because if we do, we are disregarding one of the key witnesses that testifies to us of Christ. Christ himself brought forth the testimony of the works which he did. We must regard them, therefore, with due weight. And as as Jesus continues, he, he ramps up the pressure, we could say, against his opponents. They can't deny the witness of John the Baptist. They had heard it. They can't deny that Jesus was doing these miraculous works. 
They had seen them, or else they had at least seen the clear evidence of them or had heard about them from sources that they trusted. But in verse 37, Jesus now goes to the the ultimate witness to which he appeals. He asserts that the Father who sent him had testified of him. Now it's a little bit tricky to tell exactly what Jesus' line of argument here, but it seems likely to me that when Jesus is referring to the testimony that the Father had given of him. He's talking about the the Old Testament scriptures. Notice notice how the argument unfolds. He immediately afterward adds that they had neither heard the Father's voice at any time nor seen his forms. In other words, it seems as if Jesus is clarifying the kind of testimony that he is talking about. How had the Father testified about Christ? To what testimony is Christ here appealing? He's not talking about the audible voice of God. He is appealing to a different kind of testimony. He follows this up in verse 38 by saying, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. And what kind of a word was it which his opponents did not have abiding in them? It was the scriptures that they did not have abiding in them. And this is where Christ's line of argument goes in verses 39 and following. The point here seems to be that the Father had testified about Christ. That testimony to which Christ was appealing was the Old Testament Scriptures, and these men did not have the Scriptures abiding in them. In other words, the Scriptures had not penetrated their hearts. And the evidence that the Scripture had not penetrated their hearts was uh, seen in what we find in the latter part of verse 38. For you do not believe... Him whom he sent. If they had had the Father's word truly abiding in their hearts, they would have believed in Christ. And as Christ continues, he makes it clear that this is not due to a lack of access to the word of God. They had the scriptures. They read the scriptures. They searched the scriptures. Verse 39 can be translated either as the imperative, search the scriptures, as a command, in other words, or it could also be translated in the indicative sense. You search the scriptures. In other words, you already do. You do this. I think the the indicative here is the correct way to understand what Jesus is saying here. His complaint against them seems to suggest not that they needed to search the scriptures. His complaint seems to be that though these men did search the scriptures, they didn't truly understand them and believe them. Because being generally orthodox Jewish men, these men did have the scriptures. They did search the scriptures. They thought that in reading the scriptures and hearing them explained, they had eternal life. One Jewish teacher taught that the more study of the law, the more life. And that if a man gains for himself the words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. They thought that in having the scriptures, hearing them, reading them, and so on, they had eternal life. Jesus' complaint against them now is that though they had the book, they did not get the book. It was these scriptures which they read and searched that testified about Jesus. But it did them no good because they did not come to Christ so that they might have life. It's not the having of the scriptures that guarantees eternal life. The way of salvation is to place faith in the one whom the scriptures proclaim. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the Swiss reformer Johannes Ocalampadius expressed it, Scripture alone does not make a man any the better, nor even preaching by itself, except the Holy Ghost aiding. 
It is the peculiar office of the external word to supply testimony. But it is the Spirit of God alone that can make the man, the heart of man, assent. Just the having of the Scriptures didn't do these men the good that it ought to have done because they did not submit themselves to the Scriptures. They did not truly believe the Scriptures. And Jesus continues, and he continues pressing in on his opponent. Verses 41 and 42, he makes it clear that this is not about him. He's not trying to to nag them until they start giving him glory, as if he's suffering from personal disappointment. He's not like a politician who makes a statement and then is expecting applause and getting none, says, please clap. There was once a politician who did that. He was uh, in, a, uh, in a primary election and he made a statement. Nobody clapped and he said, please clap. That's, that's not what Jesus is, is doing here. Jesus doesn't need the emotional support of having followers so that he can receive glory from them. Rather, Jesus is saying these things for their benefit so that they can recognize the terrible condition in which they are. The problem is not that Jesus is suffering from disappointed messianic hopes. The problem is that these men who search the scriptures, these men who claim to be disciples of Moses, these men who claim to be followers of the one true God, don't actually love the God whom they claim to be following. As he says in verse 42, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Jesus had come in the name of God the Father, and by his authority, and revealing the Father to mankind, doing the works that the Father had given him to do, and so on. Jesus had come having the witness of John the Baptist, having the witness of the works that the Father had given him to do, having the witness of the Old Testament Scripture. And these people who had the Scriptures and claimed to know God did not receive him. He came in his Father's name, and these people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But notice the contrast there in the second half of verse 42. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus is hinting there at a rather ironic fact that he, the true Messiah, is largely rejected by his own people, but that false Christs showed up on the scene during those years and found a ready reception among the people of Israel. In the the decades before the coming of Christ and in the hundred hundred years or so after his coming, there were many false messiahs who came among the Jewish people claiming to be someone, claiming to be a messiah. One writer reckoned that there were at least 64 false messiahs who appeared to the nation of Israel during those years. And many of those were received and and had a following. These people received the counterfeit messiahs, but rejected the true messiah. And then in verse 44, Jesus presses further on the subject of their unbelief, this time looking at the heart, questioning their sincerity. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. This was a serious obstacle to their pathway to faith. They could not believe because they ultimately did not care about receiving glory and approval from God. So they wanted glory and approval from men. And this is, this is an important statement. We'll come back to this, Lord willing, in a few moments and give it some more attention But first, let's notice how Jesus closes his argument. Jesus closes by returning to the issue of Scripture. They had the Scriptures. They searched the Scriptures. They loved Moses. They set their hopes on him. But Jesus tells them here that their beloved Moses would, in fact, be their accuser. Because Moses had written prophetically of Christ. 
And thus, if these men really believed Moses, then they would really believe him. But they didn't. They believed neither Jesus nor Moses. And the two stand and fall together. If you don't believe Moses, you won't believe Jesus. And if you don't believe Jesus, you're showing that whatever you might be claiming, you don't really believe Moses either. This is the defense that Jesus brings out against his opponents here. Jesus had made some rather shocking claims about himself here in this chapter. But he doesn't simply make the claims and walk away. He supports the claims by his appeal to other witnesses and also in doing so shows the heart problems of his opponents. And so what should we, what should we glean from this? We've kind of worked through an exposition of the text. Now we come to to try to apply it. And I'll mention two things which should stand out to us from this passage. Number one, believe the witnesses that point you to Christ. And number two, watch over your heart with all diligence. Believe the witnesses that point you to Christ. And number two, watch over your heart with all diligence. First of all, believe the witnesses. The ultimate witness to which Christ appeals here is the witness of the Father given in Scripture. Jesus says, It is these that testify about me. And the Scriptures certainly do. Certainly, the New Testament points to Christ. In the Gospels, we have the the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, His death and resurrection. The book of Acts, we have the spread of the Gospel, the proclamation of Christ to the nations. In the Epistles, we have... Practical applications of this. What should we as Christians believe? How should we as Christians conduct ourselves? You have the same thing in the book of Revelation. Although it is a prophetic book telling us of the future, it also speaks to what should we believe? How should we conduct ourselves as Christians here in this world? Obviously, the New Testament speaks of Christ. But when Jesus is speaking these words, none of the New Testament was written. So the writings to which Jesus was referring here was the Old Testament. Jesus says that the Old Testament testifies of him. Now, how so? Well, it does so in several ways. It does so by prophecy. The coming of Christ was foretold as as early as Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We see the coming of Christ prophesied broadly in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that in his descendants all nations of the earth would be blessed. We see it in the words of Jacob in his prophecy concerning his son Judah, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Moses, in writing the book of Genesis, wrote those words. Moses wrote of Christ there. We also saw, as we read together uh, this morning from Deuteronomy 18, words where the Lord said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And we could, we could certainly go on. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of Christ. The prophet Nathan spoke of Christ when he told that the house of David and his kingdom would endure before the Lord forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 David foretold the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16.10 Isaiah spoke of the suffering servant. Jeremiah spoke of a righteous branch who would be raised up for David, who would be called the Lord our righteousness. Micah foretold his birth in Bethlehem. Zechariah foretold the triumphal entry that the king of Jerusalem would come riding on a donkey. Daniel foretold that the Messiah would be cut off and would have nothing. These are the scriptures 
that testify of Christ. And the Old Testament speaks of Christ in more ways than by simply prophecy. The Old Testament points us to Christ and his work in in typology and shadows. Shadows of which Christ is the ultimate substance to which those shadows were pointing. And so the sacrificial system of the Old Testament shows us that we need a sacrifice. That we need a substitute that can take our place. That blood must be shed in order for guilt to be purged. The priesthood shows us that we need a priest in order to mediate between us and God. The Old Testament monarchy points to a far greater king. Certainly more could be said, but we'll stop there. The point is, the scriptures clearly testify of Christ. It is incumbent upon us then to search them, to seek to understand them, to believe them, and to be pointed to Christ by them. If we stop short of allowing the scriptures to direct us to Christ, then we're missing the point. Not every passage in the Bible shows us Christ in the same way, but taken as a whole, they point us to Him, to Christ, the incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended Son of God. If your study of the Scriptures does not bring you to find life in Him through faith, then at least to this point, you have searched the Scriptures in vain. Now, Some people come to the Scriptures for various reasons. Some of them come wanting to find fault with the Scriptures. Some people come to the Scriptures simply wanting to have their curiosities satisfied, perhaps concerning prophecy or perhaps concerning something else. Some people come to the Scriptures looking for good morals or for the pathway to success here in this life. Now, you certainly can find good morals in Scripture. You certainly can find wisdom in the Scriptures that will help you out in this life. No doubt about that. But good morals or pieces of wisdom about life in this world will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And so let the scriptures point you to Christ. Let them convict you of your sins. Let the law of God show you what you ought to do and ought not to do. And let it also show you the multitude of ways in which you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let it show you that you've sinned in your anger toward others and in your hatred of them and by your lust and your covetous desires and by your failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Let the scriptures show you that by nature you are a child of wrath because from inside of you, out of your heart, comes evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and slanders and that these things defile you. In this way, let the scriptures show you your need for a savior. And as you read them, Let the scriptures show you Christ, who is in every way such a Savior as your soul requires. Let them show you the way in which he perfectly meets all of your needs. That he himself is truly man, truly like us, and yet did not succumb to the temptations of Satan in any way. And at the same time, let the scriptures show you that he is truly God, that he is one with the Father, that he has authority to forgive sins, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the one who says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Let the scriptures point you to Christ so that you may come to him and find rest and peace and eternal life in him. It is these that testify about Jesus. And so... Look to the scriptures, read them, hear them read, hear them taught, hear them proclaimed, and let your goal always be to come to Christ through them, to trust him more fully, to love him more deeply, and to serve him more truly than you do right now. 
And while we're here, it is worth also pointing out the strong connection between the words of Moses and the words of Christ. Jesus says in verse 47, But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus does not expect that his words will be believed if the words of Moses were not believed. By speaking in this way, Jesus shows us the danger of rejecting the words of Moses. Really rejecting all of Scripture, but specifically he's honing in here on Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament. And it needs to be said that this is a point at which critics of the Bible often attack it. Some may suppose that they can attack the books of Moses and yet still leave faith in Christ untouched. This is a mistake. It does not work this way. Attacking any portion of Scripture is ultimately attacking faith in Christ. Calvin was right when he said that boldness in disputing is the mother of unbelief. Boldness in disputing is the mother of unbelief. It is the Scriptures that testify of Christ. And if you take away the testimonies that point to Christ, then ultimately you will do damage to faith in Christ itself. In short, don't mess with Moses. Don't mess with the writings which he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. If you do, and you carry that out to its logical end, you will find that your attack on the belief in the writings of Moses is nothing short of an attack on belief in Christ. If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe Christ's words? And this brings us to our second point of application, which is watch over your heart with all diligence. We have seen the warning about not believing the scriptures. But we should also note that warning that's given to us in verse 44, where Jesus asks, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God? Now, J.C. Ryle was helpful when he commented on this verse by saying, The great principle contained in the verse is the close connection between the state of a man's heart and his possessing the gift of faith. Believing or not believing, to have faith or not to have faith, is not a thing that depends only on a man's head being satisfied and his intellect convinced. It depends far more on the state of a man's heart. If a man is not thoroughly honest in his professed desire to find out the truth in religion, if he secretly cherishes any idol which he is resolved not to give up, if he privately cares for anything more than God's praise... He will go on to the end of his days doubting, perplexed, dissatisfied, and restless, and will never find the way to peace. And that was the problem with many of those to whom Jesus was speaking here. They loved being praised by men, and they valued that more than the praise and the approval of God. And John touches on this theme later in John chapter 12, as we saw in our unison reading where he said that many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval or loved the glory of men rather than the approval or the glory of God. That word is the same. It's sometimes translated glory, sometimes translated as, as approval. It's the same word. shows up here in John 5, also in John 12. And this stands out as a warning to us. A warning that if you love the praise of man, if you love to receive glory from man, if that's what you're after in this life, it's going to stand in your way as far as being a follower of Christ is concerned. If your main goal 
is to earn the praise of mankind, you're not going to get it by following after Christ. Now certainly, the unbelieving world sometimes does look upon the good works of believers and recognizes them as, as good and uh, can say that these are, these are virtuous people or something like that. In ancient times, uh, the pagan rhetorician Libanius of Antioch was acquainted with uh, the mother of St. John Chrysostom. And he said, ah, what wonderful women there are among the Christians. He himself was not a Christian, but he recognized that even Christians can be, can be virtuous and helpful people. But in the main, let's put it this way, you're not going to be the darling of social media. You're not going to be the darling of the news networks, the darling of Hollywood and the elites. You're not going to be the darling, maybe, of your office suite. If your main goal is to receive praise from God. If your main goal is to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, from Jesus on the day of judgment, and you actually live like that is your main goal, to hear the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, then that's going to set you at odds with a large swath of society. And if you want the praise from that large swath of society, then that is going to set you at odds with seeking glory from God. And this is something of which we need to be mindful, I think, especially in the, kind of in the air that we breathe today. Given the cultural rot that is among us and the sexual deviancy and wickedness in society that's increasingly becoming normalized and so on, it can make you feel like you stick out like a sore thumb if you don't just go along and give approval to the latest things that the culture finds acceptable. Maybe the company wants you to express your support for Pride Month or something like that. In that case, the gauntlet has kind of been laid down. You've got a choice to make. Are you going to seek the praise of men or are you going to seek the praise that comes from the only God? Are you going to stand in solidarity with the world in the praise of wickedness or are you going to take your stand on principles of righteousness according to the word of God? Now, it was said by Solomon of old that the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Proverbs 29, 25. It is also true to say that the desire for praise from man is a snare. And I dare say that those who find themselves infected with it may find themselves wandering from the faith and piercing themselves with many griefs, even as those who love for money and long for money set themselves at danger of wandering from the faith and piercing themselves with many griefs, as we find in 1 Timothy 6.10. The world, as it is currently, will praise you for deconstructing your faith. That is all the rage these days, or so it seems. You can start a blog and tell all about how bad you think the church is and how foolish you think the teachings of the Bible are, and the world may give you your five minutes of fame. The world may briefly fawn on you and give you glory and approval, make you feel like you're one of them. This is the kind of thing to which the love for this kind of praise from men ultimately leads. But what have you gained by it? How can you believe in Christ when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the only God? You will find in the end that such a trade was an extremely bad bargain, to put it mildly. And it is against this type of bargain, at least broadly speaking, that the writer to the Hebrews warns us in Hebrews 12 15 to 17, when he said, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now that warning there in Hebrews 12 is a warning against immorality and godlessness. And valuing the praise of men over and above the praise that comes from God is certainly a form of godlessness. Those who go down that road will find in due time that they have chosen poorly. Those who do that have made a choice that is along the lines of the choice that Esau made, trading a birthright for a bowl of porridge. That's a bad trade. Sure, being hungry is a miserable experience, just like being on the wrong side of public opinion and suffering reproach for the name of Christ is a miserable experience earthly, from, a, from an earthly perspective. But we can look back at Esau and we can see just how foolish he was. You trade your birthright for a bowl of food. That's foolish. How foolish can you be? And once the meal was gone, it was gone. The birthright was gone. He couldn't get it back. He had traded something of great value for something that was merely transitory and something that would would fade away. And we can see the folly in that. And so let's take note that it is just as foolish to value the praise of men and the applause of a crooked generation over the praise that comes from the only God. That's a bad bargain. The praise that comes from God will be upon those who believe the testimony that he has given concerning his son. And so let us seek that praise. Let us seek that glory from God by coming to Jesus in faith, by turning away from our sins. And let us be willing to suffer whatever insults or hardships may come upon us for Christ's sake, knowing that in Christ we have an inheritance that will never fade away. So we find in Hebrews 13, verses 13 and 14, let us go to him outside the camp, Bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking that city which is to come. And so that may we all be willing to go out to Christ. And let us all go out to seek that city which is to come. And in doing so, let us allow the scriptures to point us to Christ. Let's watch our hearts with all diligence. And therefore seek the praise that comes from God and not from men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We, we praise you, Lord, for these witnesses to which Christ appealed. We praise you, Lord, for the way in which the Old Testament points us to Christ. We thank you that the promises of God are all yes and amen in him. And Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would guard our hearts, that we would ultimately value your approval, the glory that comes from you over and above the glory and approval of the world and of this generation. Lord, we ask that you would help us and we praise you for your great kindness and love to us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.